Okay, so we're going to continue this morning looking at Psalm 119. Uh, and as I said last week, this is a very uh, special psalm um, to me personally, but I think uh, anybody that's ever looked at this psalm, um, you can't help but fall in love with it. It's so simple uh, in one respect, and yet at the same time it's it's very challenging, and that's what we're going to see more, I think, as we go through this morning. I'm just going to recap a little bit some of the things we said last week. Um, unfortunately, the uh, the audio didn't record last week, um, so if you were looking on the website trying to find it, that's why it's not there. Um, so uh, we are putting some, or I am putting some study notes together uh, of the things that we're going through. So one of the things I just want to recap before we get into the study proper is the different words that are used in this psalm um, for the word of God. Um, so often uh, different phrases get used and we've got law, testimonies, precepts, statutes, commandments, judgments, word itself and way. I just want to just give you again that brief uh, overview of what they mean because I think in the context, uh, we'll refer back to this as we go through, it's helpful to understand that there are some subtle differences between these things. So firstly, law, uh, in the Hebrew that comes from a verb which means to direct or to guide. So it's principally what the law does, to, to direct us, to guide us. It's there for our protection and safety to keep us from danger. I mean, we understand the law as like that today, don't we? The law isn't there to catch us out. The law is ultimately there to protect us um, and to keep us safe. Uh, God's law is no different than that. Um, we have the word testimonies. This is interesting because we see this quite frequently. Um, it's one of those, it's very easy to kind of skip over. and, and so, But it means to bear witness now that speaks of the things that God has testified of. It's not us bearing witness, it's God who is bearing witness. I think this is really quite interesting because God can see the end from the beginning. God is outside of time. God can see the way that we would choose or the options of the various ways we may choose to go and God can see the way that he directs us to go. And God can see the outcome of those things. You see, very often for us at the beginning of a journey, we don't know where we're going. We're not sure the 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 uh, the end as such. Uh, but God does. God knows every decision we make. On uh, I believe it was Wednesday. The weeks become a bit of a blur. I had a lovely week off work, spending time with the family. Uh, we went to Wittering's Beach. I'm sure some of you have been there before. Uh, it was our first time there. And at one point I decided that the tide was way out. And if you've ever been there when the tide is out, you can walk for, for a long, long way before you come to the water's edge. So I decided just to go for a walk. The, the girls were all kind of happily playing in the sand and so on and, and trying to bury mummy's feet and things. So I just went for a walk out to the water. And I thought I kind of just walk in a straight line out and then straight line back. And I got out and I was kind of paddling around and I started seeing crabs walking around my feet and I thought now it's time to head back in. Um, didn't really want those biting me. Um, and as I was walking back, I was trying to look for where I'd come from. I, I just walked out in a straight line. I thought how easy it is just to go in a straight line and go straight back. And I must have walked probably three, four hundred yards to the side. And I thought I was going straight. You, you see, sometimes our own navigation lets us down. Uh, and it's very true in life that sometimes we can think we're on the right course and we suddenly find that we're not on the right course. Well, God's testimonies are there because he's testifying what is the right way. And God is giving us, in a sense, the benefit of his wisdom because he's outside of time. He's saying, I've already been there. I've seen the end of that path and I can tell you where it's going. Very much as we read in uh, the book of Proverbs, that there's a way that seems right to a man. At the end thereof are the ways of death. Well, God's 
paths that he would lead us along are only going to be for life or God's path. Um, the next one is precepts. That comes from a word which means to place in trust. I think that's interesting as well, because what effectively it means is that God has given us his truth, and he expects us to respect it to start with, but he's placed heavenly wisdom in trust with us. He's given us the benefit of his knowledge of things that are uh, heavenly. We're custodians in this life of these things. Um, uh, The Hebrew word actually um, occurs only in this psalm. Uh, and we fight 21 times. I just thought that was interesting. Uh, if any of you have ever looked at the, the numbers in the Bible, you'll notice there's consistency. Um, threes always seem to have some reference to divine, to God. Seven is a, a number that always seems to apply to completeness. So it's almost like you know God's complete wisdom uh, is being expressed here. Uh, it's given to you and I, to act as custodians. What do we do with that knowledge and that wisdom that God gives us? Because God is placing in trust this wisdom, this knowledge of how to live our lives, of things that are true. So we see that come up a time and time again. Statutes is another one. Uh, it's a verb which, um, or the word is formed from a verb, which means to engrave or to inscribe. Okay, the words, uh, it's a definite prescribed written law. Spurgeon says this, he says, um, that moral law of God which is engraven on the fleshly tables of the heart the innermost and spiritual apprehension of his will. Next one is commandments. Uh, that again comes from a, a verb meaning simply to command or to ordain. So not only has God written his law in our hearts, he's actually commanded us to keep it as well. And we'll see that as we go through. You know, God doesn't sit passively by and let us fumble through life, making up our own rules and laws. He's given us definite instructions and we are obligated because we are his creation. This is one of the the big challenges of today because the world would like us to believe that we are just a product of time and chance and evolution and so on. And there are no uh, rules as such. Well, God did create. This world didn't come about by, by chance. And so we're accountable to God. This is one of the reasons people want to just reject the idea of God as creator because if you can do away with the idea that God is creator... Well then, who's in charge? You are. You know, and there is no higher power or authority. You know, and, and who's got the right to tell you anything? Because actually, we're all at various supposed stages of our own evolutionary growth. If you go by the world standards, well, of course that's nonsense. There is a God. He's given us His laws. God is the one who's made the world and everything in it. And so we should expect that He's placed rules and laws. So we have His commandments. And of course, the uh, the refusal to obey that is uh, very tragically seen with the situation in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden. Judgments are another word that uh, repeatedly uh, occurs through this psalm, and it's signifying to govern or to judge, to determine, very much as we would use the word, no surprise there. Uh, but of course God is judge of all, and he has decreed, uh, and his subjects again are duty-bound to follow him. Uh, as we'll see a number of times through this, God is just in his judgments. You know, God never ever does anything that's unjust. He's not tyrannical in his judgment. A lot of people see God as this kind of tyrannical God who rules over everybody and dictates. That's not the way God is. You see, every one of God's judgments have come from a heart of love to us. We have the word, word, um, speaking of God's word. And of course, in a, in a connotative, in a general sense, it embraces God's revelation to man. All that God has revealed to man through his written word, through the spoken word, things that he's revealed to his prophets. 
But also, um, more specifically, we find it in certain things that God has said at certain times. So, both in a, a general sense and also a specific sense. And then finally, it actually only occurs twice, but in verse 1 and in verse 37, is the term way specifically used as God's way. Okay, rather than just a way that we may follow or so on. But specifically speaking of God's way. Um, that God has a prescribed path that he's set for us, that he wants us to walk in it, and so on. Um, and very much like I said earlier, you know, there is a way that seems right to man, but God has a way that is right and true. I will uh, let you have a copy of all of those things uh, in terms of all the notes for it and so on. Um, okay, let's uh, before we go any further, let's just bow our hearts and just, just commit this, this time to the Lord. So, Father, we just... Ask now that you open our hearts, open our minds. Give us, Lord, insight into your word. We want to understand the things that you have written. Because, Lord, your word tells us of itself that these things are here for our learning. So, Lord, we want to grow. We want to learn. We want to know more of you. And, Father, we want to understand how we deal with this issue of life. How do, Lord, we walk by faith? Lord, we were singing about it in, in one of the songs this morning, walking by faith, not by sight. But Lord, how? So we pray, Father, that you give us real spiritual insight and understanding into these things, that we would grow. That, Lord, not only would we be pleasing to you, but, Lord, that our own lives would experience that blessing that this psalm speaks of, that we can glorify you, that we can praise you, and that, Father, others would look and see. And so, Father, we just give you this time now. Speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, we started last time by just looking at the uh, the opening four verses, really. Uh, and one of the key things that I drew out of that was the the fact that it starts with this word, blessed. That God wants to bless us. Now, it's interesting because uh, one of the things that, uh, as I was just going back over um, and looking at uh, some of these things again, there's a number of occasions in Scripture that it speaks of a double blessing. Um, in Genesis, and, and, well, there'll be some verses we can turn to in a minute. I'm going to just uh, highlight these for a moment if you want to make notes of them. But Genesis 48:22, it just speaks there of the blessing that God, also that Jacob, wanted to give to Joseph because of all that Joseph had done, his faithfulness, and so on. Uh, God wanted to give, so Jacob wanted to give Joseph a double blessing. They all got a portion of the inheritance, but Joseph got a double blessing. Just turn turn with me, if you will, this time, to Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 17. So the fifth book of the Bible, the fifth book of Moses, uh, kind of closing out the Torah, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 21. Now, I'll pick up verse 17. Now, it's in the context here... uh, a very interesting passage. There's a lot of uh, parallels with Israel and the church and so on in these two things. Um, and of course, this is at a time when man had strayed from God's ideal. God's idea was laid down very clearly in Genesis. And at this time in history, uh, for the Jews certainly, uh, a man may have more than one wife. And the idea here that's being suggested is that if you have two children... Uh, one by a wife that you loved, and one by a wife that you didn't love as much. Um, you weren't to favour the child of the wife you loved. Um, and if you just read verse 17 with me, it says, But he shall acknowledge the son of the hated for the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has. For he is the beginning of his strength. 
the right of the firstborn is his. So it's saying that if the 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 firstborn, actually, in terms of time, chronologically, the firstborn child, if he was the son of the, the wife that was loveless, regardless of that, the fact that he was the firstborn means that he inherits this double portion of the blessing. Now, it's interesting because I'm sure you're familiar, if you want to turn there, you can, but in First John, we have a lovely um, scripture that really for us is just, well, if we read it and understand it, it's mind-blowing. Because it says, Behold, what manner of love. This is First John chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed or showered or poured upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Now, I, I take issue with some of the modern versions on this one because they try to be gender neutral and try to be politically correct. And some of them will translate that child of God. And I know what they're doing and it's okay, but they miss the point. Because by saying son of God, you're saying the right of the one who is to inherit the double blessing. The moment you change that to child, you lose the impact of what that really means from a, a Jewish mindset. And, you know, whether for ladies this morning, you want to have this portion of the son. You want the, God is giving you the right of the firstborn. It's, it's not child, it is son. That's what the, the, word, the word is uh, in the, the Greek at this point. So it's... Understand that God has given us that double portion of blessing. And it's interesting because we have in this psalm, both uh, verse 1 and verse 2, this double blessing that's given. Blessed, uh, we start the psalm with, let me go back there. Uh, Blessed, and we're told, and the conditions are there, are the undefiled in the way, who walk in the law of the Lord. And then again, blessed are they that keep his testimonies. So once again, this double portion. Now again, as I've, I've said last week, uh, the psalm really kind of encapsulates this walk of faith by the believer. Uh, and I think this is why for us it's going to be so helpful as we go through it. It really kind of states the, the objective and the goal of our, our lives, our walk as Christians. Which really is, as Psalm seventeen fifteen, as David says there, is to be conformed to his likeness. That's the purpose of the Christian life. There's a great verse, um, I, I, some of you may have seen, I've uh, finished some study notes I've been working on for a while. I've finally got them printed now. Um, and they're drawn out of a, a passage in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. And it speaks there of a number of things, doctrinal things, that we should understand, that we should get nailed down. And it says, so that we can go on to perfection. That's the purpose of the Christian life. It's really good. Doctrine is vitally important, but it's only the building block that we, we build from. It, it's a starting point. We should understand Doctrine. We should understand details about judgment, about God's plan, about all the things that are coming. Those are important things to know. But the reason we know that is so that we can go on. It's like when you do a jigsaw, um, you do the framework first. Don't you? you start with the, the edge pieces, kind of the, the, the flat edges, and then you, you start to build the picture in the middle. Well, Scripture is just like that. You start with the framework, get the doctrine sorted out, and then you start filling in the center and you start to see the picture. Well, the picture of Scripture is, of course, Jesus. And the more you start to understand, the more you see of Jesus as we study. So, David, again, says that he wanted to be conformed, transformed to the likeness uh, of Jesus. And in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, there Paul says that we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So that's the goal. That's where we're going. Doctrine and the details. And, and we just had a, a good time. I hope you were blessed and enjoyed going through Revelation. But Revelation's a book with a lot of details, isn't it? A lot of information, how this works, where this happens, and, and trying to understand chronologically where things fit in. But this is kind of the meat now. This is really where we need to be in our walk as Christians. 
to start looking at, okay, Lord, how does it impact my life? Yeah, you know, when I leave here on a Sunday morning, am I any different than when I came in? When I go through the week, am I just like the people I work with, or am I different? If we've been born again, the Spirit of God indwells us. We've become the temples of the living God. And so we should be very, very different. Verses 1 to 4, as I kind of highlighted last week, I think set the standard. And they set an impossible standard. You know, there's no way we can get to this kind of level. I want to just read to you. Uh, let me see if I can just find this comment. Yeah, this is uh, by uh, a man by the name of Charles Bridges, again, just drawing from... Uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon's Treasury of David, he says, the first attempt to render spiritual obedience will quickly convince us of our utter helplessness. I like that. You know, the first time you try and get it right, and you live a godly, holy life, you know, we've all been there, we've all tried it, and probably more than once. You know, the moment you do it, it will convince you of your utter helplessness. And that's what those first four verses do. They set a standard that's impossible to keep naturally. With natural resources, just the natural man. You can't live that life. It speaks of being undefiled, totally set apart. As we highlighted last week, even James makes the comment that the tongue, just the things you say, can bring defilement. The walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies. And it's about all of the things that God has revealed to us, that his revelation. And that's seeking with a whole heart. And it says, they also do no iniquity. I mean, this is setting a standard that is just beyond the natural man. But that's the point. This quote goes on and says, um, again, let me just read from the beginning. The first attempt to render spiritual obedience will quickly convince us of our utter helplessness. We might as soon create a world as create in our hearts one pulse of spiritual life. Like that. We can't do it. And this is one of the great lessons we're going to start to learn as we go through this. And that's why, again, as I said, that song we were singing a moment ago, Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. When we come to that place of realizing that we need God, what a wonderful walk our life becomes with the Lord. You know, Jesus spoke about his burden being light. And for many Christians, I think that burden's heavy as we kind of stumble through life trying to be righteous, trying to live as we know we should. Well, this again, I think the psalm's going to lead us there. Before we get into the uh, verse 5 onwards, I just want to take you um, to a couple of scriptures. Um, just turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 26, verse 18. We're all very much aware that our salvation is by grace alone. You can't earn it. You didn't deserve it. Nothing you could do to contribute to it. You simply receive on the basis of faith. That's our salvation. But strangely enough, when it comes to sanctification, or that which David, I believe, is, we'll talk about authorship in a moment, but the psalmist here is talking about being set apart, not being defiled, and so on. So often when it comes to those things, immediately we try and do it in our own strength. Let's just look at what this verse says. So, in uh, Acts chapter 26, verse 18. And again, it's just talking here about the, the mission um, that Jesus uh, was uh, was giving Paul to go and uh, bring this message to the Gentiles. And verse 18 says, To open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Notice how sanctification comes? By faith. Sanctification doesn't come by your effort. It doesn't come by your 
New Year's resolutions or your determination to get it right. Because you won't do it that way. And I, I for one, and, and I'm sure many here this morning have, have been in that place where we've tried to get it right. And you stumble and you get more and more frustrated with yourself. Well, this verse just is one of those indicators that tells us that sanctification is by faith in Jesus. Turn to First Thessalonians chapter 4. So a little bit further on in the New Testament. <clears throat> just before we get to the book of Hebrews. So First Thessalonians chapter 4. A very, very important verse. If you underline verses in your Bible, this is worth underlining. Because... So many of us at times ask questions about, I wonder what God's will is in this situation. Well, this verse is a great verse because it tells us what God's will is. Period. This is it. It says, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification. God's will is that you be set apart. That is what God wants. Why do you go through the trials you go through? God's will for you is sanctification. Why do you experience the hardships you do in life? Because God wants to set you apart. Every time you ask that question, I wonder what God's will is, the answer to that question is here. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3. But this is the will of God, even your sanctification. You see, God wants us to be set apart. It's interesting. I mean, this is is such an enormous thing for us to try and get our heads around this one. But it's interesting because the next part of the verse actually then goes on and says that you should abstain from fornication. It kind of almost seems a strange thing to throw in the context. Um specifically talking about fornication in amongst that. But, of course, in the physical sense that applies, but also spiritually. Because anything that would draw us away from God, anything that would come between us and God, one of the ways that that fornication is described is unlawful intimate indulgence. And we can allow all sorts of things into our lives without even thinking about it that can become more important than Jesus. And that can lead us into, in a sense, spiritual fornication where Jesus stops becoming our first love. In uh, 2 Corinthians 11, 12, you don't have to turn there for now, but Paul speaks there saying to the Corinthians that he wanted to present them to Christ as a chaste virgin. That's how Paul says the church should be. Set apart just for Jesus, not for anything else of this world. So, again, this whole theme we find in scripture that God wants us to be set apart and it's really amplified in those opening four verses of this psalm. Now, I just want to, I said last week I mentioned a little bit about the authorship because this is a psalm, it's not specifically highlighted or mentioned who the author is. Um, but it seems to me and many, many commentators and scholars would, would agree that this is the work of David. Does it matter? Well, in some sense, I think it does. Because once you understand the heart behind this, it actually means a little bit more when you look at some of the details. I just want to read to you what Spurgeon says. He says, We believe that David wrote this psalm. It is Davidic in tone and expression. And it tallies with David's experience in many interesting points. In our youth, our teacher called it David's pocketbook. And we incline to the opinion then expressed that here we have the royal diary written at various times throughout a long life. No, we cannot give up this psalm to the enemy. This is David's spoil. After long reading, an author gets, uh, an author, uh, one gets to know his style. Sorry, after long reading an author, one gets to know his style. And a measure of discernment is acquired by which his composition is detected, even if his name be concealed. We feel a kind of critical certainty that the hand of David is in this thing. Yes, that is altogether his own. So, 
That was Spurgeon's comments. Um, forgive me if I if I mention at times David, but that's my feeling. I believe that's the case. Um, it's not a major doctrinal issue, so I'm not going to press the point. Um, but I just think that some things here just speak of the life and the experience that David had. So, <clears throat> okay. So let's uh, move on and go on to the next uh, section of the verses. So uh, we ended verse four with "Thou hast commanded us to keep thy precepts diligently." And now it becomes very, very personal. It's kind of started to become more personal. It started very much in the third person, speaking about those who will be blessed. But now, David, the psalmist, whoever it is, says, verse 5, Oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. You know, there's kind of a, an acknowledgement there that that's not the case. That my ways are not directed by God to keep his statutes. You know, wouldn't it be great if God forced our hand and made us live a righteous and holy life? You know, to stop us ever stumbling and ever sinning? Wouldn't that be good in some ways? And yet God won't do that, because that would violate the free will and the free choice he's given each one of us. And also, it kind of makes love meaningless, doesn't it? You see, love is love because it comes from a heart that is willing and and wanting to love and to give. You know, if you force someone to love you, it means nothing. And if God were to force us, and as is being implied here, I don't think the psalmist is suggesting for a minute that this can happen. I think that's why it starts with that kind of pleading. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep those statutes. If only that were the case. Because, I don't know about you, but you've gone through days, I'm sure, where you've allowed things into your heart or your mind, you know, feelings, emotions, or whatever else, and you thought, why, I just want to get back to that walk with God. You know, and sometimes we can have great times together as we fellowship on Sunday mornings, or you go to a conference, or whatever else, you know, and then you, you want to stay in that spiritual place where everything seems so blessed, and suddenly you find yourself out of that zone. And it's like, oh, if only God would just engineer circumstances so that this is always where I live my life. And that's, I think, very much what is being said here. I want to just read to you a comment of Spurgeon again. He says, This verse is a sigh of regret because the psalmist feels that he has not kept the precepts diligently. It's a cry of weakness appealing for help to one who can aid. It is a request of bewilderment from one who has lost his way and would fain be directed in it. And it is a petition of faith from one who loves God and trusts in him for grace. One would hardly have expected A prayer for direction. Rather, should we have looked for a petition for enabling? Uh, What what Spurgeon is saying there is that, you know, it's strange almost that that the psalmist here is saying, you know, that my ways are directed. Surely we can direct ourselves. Surely what we need is the ability to keep his statutes. Not directed towards the statutes in the first place. But then he goes on and says, what, uh, he says, can we not direct ourselves? What if we cannot row? Can we steer? The psalmist herein confesses that even for the smallest part of his duty, he felt unable without grace. He longed for the Lord to influence his will, as well as to strengthen his hands. We want a rod to point out the way as much as a staff to support us in it. I think as you you go on and you start to think through that verse, uh, there's another quote about Charles Bridges, uh, and he said this, he says, the first attempt, this is what I said earlier actually, the first attempt to render spiritual obedience will quickly convince us of our utter helplessness. Uh, and this really is that situation as we realise that we would love God to force our hand. 
If only we had to keep his statutes. And yet, there is something that comes through that, that walk and that learning to be victorious. We carry on. It says, uh, oh that my ways. Straight away there's that acknowledgement that our ways are different from God's ways. If you can make a note of the scripture if you want, but Isaiah 55 verse 8 tells us that God's ways are not our ways. God's ways are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. And the psalmist straight away saying, the my ways were directed. There's, there is a stark contrast between my ways and God's ways. The ways of my natural life will not be the ways of God. And we need to get that very clear to start with. Because if we go out and try and bend our natural calls back, it won't work. Because naturally, the, the natural man doesn't respond to the things of God. You know, our, our hearts, Jeremiah tells us, are deceitful. And even when we are born again, I mean, David cried in Psalm 51, creating me a clean heart, O God. But we still need our minds to be transformed. You know, the natural mind does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, Paul tells us. Nor can he know them because they are foolishness. So understand that our natural ways, the natural way of of living, is not going to lead us toward God. Then, he carries on, then shall I not be ashamed when I have respect unto all thy commandments. Now, I think what the psalmist is saying here is that if only that were the case, if my ways were directed to keep God's statutes, his statutes, then, if that were the case, I wouldn't be ashamed when I have respect unto all thy commandments. And there starts to come in here, I believe, a kind of a, a longing and a looking forward to and a hope of all that God has promised he's going to do. But just before we come back to that, I want to just uh, amplify a little bit the whole idea here about this being ashamed. You know, we are, probably all of us, ashamed at things we've done in our lives, in our past life, before we came to know Christ. You know, there's things that we wouldn't want to share with other people. We wouldn't want to expose. We said before, and if we could play up on the screen here this morning, details, excerpts of your life, you know, you'd probably be feeling very uncomfortable. I think probably ashamed is the best word. You know, but even as believers, even if you just take this last week, there's probably things that you've thought or you said or you've done, things that you've looked at, maybe ways that you've treated your spouse, ways that you've acted in front of your children, for those of you who have children, things that you've allowed into your home via TV, things that maybe you've coveted or lusted after, even as believers in the last week. You know, the reality is that there is a lot that goes on that we kind of keep away from other people, but in our hearts it makes us ashamed. And the real issue here, by the way, isn't about being ashamed before other people. It's about being ashamed before God. Remember the situation back in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve fell? What did they go and do? Go and get these fig leaves, and they make aprons and clothing for themselves because they realized they were naked and they were ashamed. You see, prior to that point, they'd been covered with the glory of God. But because of their sin, that glory had had left them and they suddenly become acutely aware. You see, they were both in the same predicament. I don't think they were ashamed because of each other, maybe seeing each other. That wasn't the issue. It was God. They were ashamed because of what had happened. And they recognized that suddenly they'd lost this covering and this clothing that they should have had. You see, it's what God thinks that really matters. That's why, again, going back to Psalm 51, David there says, against you only have I sinned. Now, David's speaking after his transgression with Bathsheba. 
But he doesn't say against Uriah or against the Hittifel, the grandfather. He doesn't say any of those things. He doesn't say it was against Bathsheba he'd sinned. He says, against you only have I sinned. You see, David was ashamed because he recognized that he let God down. I'm sure some of you have um, heard this before, but let me just read this to you anyway. If Jesus came to your house to spend a day or two, if he came unexpectedly, I wonder what you'd do. Oh, I know you'd give your nicest room to such an honored guest and all the food you'd serve him would be the very best. And you'd keep assuring him that you're glad to have him there, that serving him in your own home is a joy beyond compare. But when you saw him coming, would you meet him at the door with arms outstretched in welcome to your heavenly visitor? Or would you have to change your clothes before you let him in or hide some magazines and put the Bible where they'd been? Would you turn off the radio and hope he hadn't heard? And wish you hadn't uttered that last loud, hasty word. Would you hide your worldly music and put some hymn books out? Could you let Jesus walk right in or would you rush about? And I wonder, if the Saviour spent a day or two with you, would you go right on doing the things you always do? Would you go right on saying the things you always say? Would your life for you continue as it does from day to day? Would your family conversation keep up its usual pace? And would you find it hard each meal to say a table grace? Would you sing the songs you always sing and read the books you read and let him know the things on which your mind and spirit feed? Would you take Jesus with you everywhere you plan to go? Or would you maybe change your plans for just a day or so? Would you be glad to have him meet your very closest friends? Would you hope they'd stay away until his visit ends? Would you be glad to have him stay forever, on and on? Or would you sigh with great relief when at last he was gone? It might be interesting to know the things that you would do if Jesus Christ in person came to spend some time with you. It kind of underlines the the reality of what this verse is saying. You know, if only we could keep God's laws, keep his statutes, we wouldn't be ashamed you know, and when we have respect, when we value and treasure all, and notice that word all, all of his commandments, not just the kind of ones that, that, that suit us that we like, but all of God's commandments, the ones that may even affect the way we drive a car and how fast that we may choose to go, or the jokes that we may we, you know, want to tell and repeat because they seem quite funny at the time and yet maybe we're inappropriate. And, you know, all of those things in life. Turn with me, if you will, to... Romans chapter 6, because this is just a a short verse, but it's worth just marking and noting. Romans chapter 6, and we're going to go to verse 21, but while you're looking at that, let me just tell you, in Proverbs 28, verse 1, it says, the wicked flee when no man pursues. So it's an interesting verse, isn't it? You know, people that are caught up in the things of this world end up looking over their shoulder, expecting problems, expecting trouble. You know, and, and as Christians, we don't want to find ourselves there. Romans 6.21, a really important verse, it says this. It says, what fruit had you then in those things whereof you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. And Paul in that chapter goes through, it's worth reading chapter 6 of Romans again and again. But that verse just says, just think for a moment about the things that you used to do before you came to Christ. And now just think for a moment. What benefit did it give you? What blessing did it bring your life? How did it help you in any way? The reality is, it didn't. 
You see, we look at those things and we're actually kind of ashamed of some of those things now. Ashamed of almost all of those things. See, what fruit had we then? You know, it's Jesus speaks of trees bearing fruit. And you can tell a, fruit, a tree by the, the kind of fruit that it bears. And notice the, the future tense of the statement. Because it's then, should I not be ashamed, when? Okay, so I think what we're starting to see here is this longing and looking forward to something that God is going to do. Because, again, psalmist pleading that God would direct us, that we would keep his statutes, because if that could happen, and when that happens, we won't be ashamed. There is a day coming that we're not going to be ashamed. There's going to be a a day coming where there will be no more sin and sickness or sorrow and pain. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. Giving your fingers a bit of a workout this morning. But just another key verse for us to just take hold of. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. And again, if you mark verses in your Bible, this is definitely one to, to underline and to mark. Because it says, being confident of this very thing, that he, speaking of Jesus, which has begun from the moment you were saved, in fact, even prior to your salvation, from before the foundation of the world, but he which has begun a good work in you, will perform it. Now notice who's doing the work. It's Jesus that is doing the work. He will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Until that day that we meet him face to face. Until that day we leave this world behind. Such an important verse to, to understand. So, again, there is a, a day coming where we won't be ashamed, where we will have respect unto all of God's commandments, where we will not just give them lip service, but we will really honour them and live them because we'll be away from the, the pressures and the temptations and the trials of this life. We carry on in verse 7. Again, a future tense. Notice what we're told here. I will praise thee with uprightness of heart. That's a bold statement. Given all that's gone before, this kind of impossible standard that's been set. This pleading that if only I could go God's way and keep his statutes. But then verse 7, I will praise thee with uprightness of heart. When I shall have learnt thy righteous judgments. Now notice there's a when attached to that verse as well. It's not just a simple... Uh, I'm going to do this, I'm making this, this judgment, but there's a, there's a when, and the when is so important because it's simply saying that this, when this time comes, that we have been transformed into the likeness of Jesus, when we have left again this world behind, well, then we will praise him with uprightness of heart. How can we honestly say at this stage that we praise him with uprightness of heart? Because even when we sing our songs this morning, when we, we sing songs and there's some great choruses and some great hymns, we sing, don't we? I surrender all. And we sing it, do we really, truly mean that? Or have got no doubt of the sincerity in our hearts at that moment we're singing, but then it doesn't take very long for something to occur in our lives and we realise we haven't actually surrendered all. Spurgeon made another comment on this verse. He said, be sure that he who prays for holiness will one day praise for happiness. I like that. Just praying that God would make us holy, make us what he wants us to be. We'll one day praise for happiness. We've got a lot to learn. There's a lot we still need to, to grow and to understand in our spiritual walk. But this, I will praise thee. That looking forward to the fact that, and we hold on to it just as we've read a moment ago, that Jesus has begun a good work in us. Jesus doesn't start something that he's not going to finish. And 
If this morning you know Jesus is your Lord and Saviour, he has begun that work in you and he will not give up. So verse 8 to conclude this morning. Again, notice there's an I will. This determination. I will keep thy statutes. Now this isn't that kind of New Year's resolution kind of commitment type thing of I'm going to do my best here because I think already the psalmist has realised that that doesn't work. Because he's already said, verse 5, Oh, that my ways were directed to keep thy statutes. He says, I will keep thy statutes. Well, how can that be said then? Is there not a contradiction there? Well, no, because it's looking forward once again to that time. It's that future tense. You know, we've got this long journey ahead of us. But we've got this hope that we will be transformed into his likeness. You know, as we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, this mortality will put on immortality. These corrupt bodies will be given away and we will get these new bodies that are fit for eternity. And then we will praise and keep his judgments and statutes. They will be engraved on our hearts as well as on our minds. The end of the book of Jude, you don't need to turn there, but let me just read to you what uh, we read at the end of the book of Jude. And again, this is just another one of those encouraging verses. It just says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless. No sin, no spot, no blemish. Able to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God our Saviour be glory, majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. That's how Jude concludes his book. So again, I will keep thy statutes, and then notice how it ends here. Oh, forsake me not utterly, which is exactly what we deserve. We, we deserve to be forsaken. We don't deserve God's blessings. We didn't deserve salvation in the first place, and we don't deserve sanctification. It is all a work of his grace. But because he loves us, he calls us. And because he loves us, he has begun that work. He will continue that work. And God will transform us. So now we're set up to start looking at the how-to. Because what we've seen is the standard has been set, the reality that one day we will be there, that one day we will be transformed, that this world will, will, will be gone. I mean, people talk about the, the, the three tenses of salvation. Let me just, just to clarify. People, we, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. Okay, That was done at the cross. We are being saved from the power of of sin. That's the work of sanctification. And we will be saved, future tense, from the presence of sin. Let me give you that one more time. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin as the Lord works in us that process of sanctification. And that's what this study is going on to look at. And finally, we will be saved, future tense, from the presence of sin itself. And the first part really is speaking about God's standard. The second part is speaking about that that future tense that we will be saved from the very presence of sin itself. And then, what a joy, that we won't be ashamed. Just there's, there's some, The negatives in some of the way that's written here for us, but spin that around, because verse 6, there's going to come a day that we will not be ashamed at all. There'll be nothing to censor, and we will have respect unto all his commandments. We will praise Jesus with uprightness of heart when we will have learned his righteous judgments. And it's coming a day that we will keep his statutes. Saints, that's something to, to take comfort in. Because again, it is not you that is doing this work, it is Jesus that is doing this work in you. We just need to be willing to let him do that work. When we 
come back again next week. We're going to pick up. I encourage you this week to read the next eight verses. So from verse chapter, verse 9 to verse 16, that's what we'll look at next week. As I said already, the Psalm 119 is broken up. Each section of eight verses starts, every verse in each section in the Hebrew starts with the corresponding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So the first eight verses we've gone through all start with effectively the letter A. The next eight verses all start with the letter B or Bet in the, the Hebrew. So again, it was given as a, a guide, uh, an aid to memory. Um, You've got seven days in the week, um, so you know one day you're going to need to do two verses, but you just even if you just try and take one verse a day, and try and commit it to memory as you're going through the day, just try and remember, it's not a lot to, to, to take on and remember, but just meditate on God's word, and just see what God says to you. This isn't a study just where I'm going to be teaching you, this is very much an interactive thing, where you and God can have this conversation. And we're going to start to look next week as the how-to, because we've looked at what we should be going for, where we should be, the reality that we'll we'll get there, now we're going to be looking at, okay, what about between now and then? What about our lives? What about this walk of faith, which really I think the rest of this psalm is all about? Let's bow our hearts. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've given us your word, that you have given us your instructions. The Lord, you haven't left us alone, but Lord, you've also given us your Holy Spirit to accompany us on this journey. And Lord, as we continue to grow in knowledge and in grace, Lord, help us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Lord, help us to learn to fellowship with you. Help us to fall in love more and more with your word. And Lord, make us the people that you want us to be. Lord, thank you again that you've given us the privilege of growing together. And Lord, not one of us has got it all right except, of course, for our Saviour Jesus. And we want to keep our eyes steadfastly upon him, the author and the finisher of our faith. So, Lord, help us on our journey. Help us through this week. Help us every day, every hour. Lord, we acknowledge we need you. And, Lord, we love you. We just want to grow closer to you and closer to each other. So, Lord, we just thank you for this time now. In Jesus' precious name, amen.